Fatigue, fatigue causes accidents. Fatigue causes accidents. Um, in the last 40 years, there have been um, disasters around the world, and all of them can be, can be contributed in part to fatigue. The Exxon Valdez spill, partially caused because of the fatigue of the operators. Um, Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. All of those were caused in part due to fatigue. Not eating enough food, uh, not getting enough rest. Fatigue causes accidents. The National uh, Highway Traffic and Safety Administration estimates that it's because of fatigue uh, that over 100,000 accidents happen a year and about 1,600 crash-related deaths are attributed to fatigue. I know this firsthand. Actually, I lived through it. I lived through this experience. In 2009, uh, I had the opportunity to drive across the country with my best friend, Joel, and we did it uh, in four nights uh, and five days from, from Simi Valley to Atlanta. And my friend Joel, he's a paramedic, and um, so at the time he was working, he was the driver of a paramedic truck, and he worked these like three days on, two days off, these crazy shifts where he worked 24-7, uh, or not 24-7, but all night long. Um, and he, at the time, was, was very proud of the fact that he was living his life on about three hours of sleep a night. So we're driving across the country, and we were somewhere in, uh, in Arkansas, and I asked him, do you want me to drive? And it was about 11 o'clock at night. And he goes, no, I'm used to not getting sleep. I'll, I'll be fine. So I eased my seat back, and I tell you, it, like 40 seconds, I eased my seat back and closed my eyes for a second and then opened them, and it was maybe 40 seconds. And I looked over, and Joel's eyes were closed, and he still, he still had his hands on the wheel, thank goodness, but he veered into the opposing lane. It was a two-lane highway somewhere in the middle of Arkansas. And I shot up, and I looked at him, and I just went, ah! You know, I just was screaming. I grabbed the wheel, and I, you know, I pulled us back into the lane. And he's like, what, what? I'm fine, I'm fine. I can keep driving. I'm like, no. We pulled over. I, I, was, I just lost it because we had almost gone off the road. And, and he was so proud of being able to you know, survive his life on three hours of sleep at night. And I'm like, no, I'm driving. <laughs> So fatigue, fatigue can cause accidents. So I ask you, are you fatigued? Are you tired? Are you burned out? How are you sleeping? How's your diet? How are you eating? Today our scripture comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Now, this uh, scripture uh, is is actually, uh, last week, if you were here in worship, Pastor Neil talked about uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And the scripture that I'm sharing with you today is actually the scripture that comes right before that. So, Mark, chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they, that would be the disciples and the closest followers of Jesus, they did not even have a chance to eat. And Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw Jesus and the disciples leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. 
This is God's word to us this morning. So I want to make uh, three observations from today's scripture. And the first is, the first is perhaps very obvious. Jesus encouraged rest. Jesus encouraged rest. Because they had not even had a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come to me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now, in our culture today, long work hours and busyness are topics of pride. How many times have you overheard a conversation? How many times have you participated in a conversation of one-upsmanship where the content of the competition, the content of pride is how busy a certain person is? Bob, how was your week? Well, I tell you, I worked five days last week, but man, I was working 12-hour days, and by the time I commuted home, I collapsed into bed, and it just seemed like I woke up, and I was right back at it. Really? Well, I was working three, 13-hour days a week, and on Tuesday, I passed a kidney stone. I mean, it just goes on and on uh, to a sense of kind of ridiculousness. In light of the culture that we're inextricably a part of, we're a part of this culture. Jesus says, come with me to a quiet place and rest. The biblical principle at work here, or should I say, the biblical principle applicable here, the biblical principle of rest is Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath is a commandment. This commandment is... uh, Uh, In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, it's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male nor female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But God rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Two things I want to unpack from the fourth commandment, <laughs> the observing and remembering the Sabbath day. Number one, the Sabbath day is the seventh day. And... Um, It's meant to be a day of rest in which we commune with God and we commune with other people. Now, this talks about six days of labor and a seventh day of Sabbath. In our culture, we have a five-day work week. Uh, There's an interesting article I attached to the U version about how uh, the Western culture, and specifically the United States about 100 years ago, um, started our five-day work week in an eight-hour day. But how many of you on your sixth day find yourselves laboring and not getting paid for it, (laughs) right? Uh, The sixth day is the day where laundry is done, yard work is done, all the, you know, do-it jobs that need to be done around your house is done, and perhaps you're doing errands, grocery shopping, maybe you have appointments, all of these things, right? And uh, how many of you have ever had a a weekend where you're more tired (laughs) after the weekend than you were when you went into it, Right? So a lot of our sixth days are spent in labor as well. But that seventh day, that seventh day is meant to be in relationship with God, resting and in in relationship with others. Now, what I, uh, I've read it hundreds of times, um, but it jumped out at me this week uh, where, where it reads, because Exodus 20 
points us back to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm uh, continuously amazed how many times uh, when I'm reading Scripture, I am pointed back to the first three chapters of Genesis. There is so much packed into the beginning of Genesis. So the very beginning of the Bible, uh, Exodus, the, the fourth commandment, points us back to that. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But God rested on the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day. So part of the character, the part of who God is and revealed to us in creation and in the rhythm of the creation is rest. So God created all time, space, energy, and matter And after all of creation, not only did he create it, but in the world that we live in, all of life, all of these things are somehow sustained by God. And that mysteriously, in the midst of that, part of who God is and what God wants to share with us is also a sense of rest and peace. Right there. And God wants that to be a blessing. It goes on. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The the rest is meant to be a blessing. And for some reason, right, we just, we're in control and we're going to keep working and everything's going to work out okay. And yet God is like, there's two doors before us that we can choose. And one door is a door of blessing, of rest, of personal rejuvenation, of being closer and growing closer to God and closer to others. And that's the day of blessing. And then there's another door of burnout, of exhaustion, of fatigue. Which door do you want to choose? In obedience to the Lord. Now, I'm talking about sabbatical, which is the seventh day, but I also want to talk... I said sabbatical. I see. I said the punchline. Woo! Okay. Sabbath. I was talking about Sabbath, which is the seventh day. I do want to talk about sabbatical. See, my subconscious was ahead of me. So, sabbatical. Uh, uh, at, at this time in the life of our church, um, in uh, late April, the Board of Elders um, awarded me a sabbatical. And um, since there's some confusion and some discussion, I want to take some time to talk about that as well. So, sabbatical in our denomination is awarded to pastors. Uh, oftentimes every seven, for every seven years that they've been in ministry in a church. So I have been in uh, Stonebridge uh, Church for 22 years as an ordained pastor, and so the Board of Elders wanted to recognize that with awarding me a sabbatical. So um, the elders represent all of you, so I thank the elders, but I also thank all of you because this is a very generous gift to give me. Um, so I want to talk a little about what I'm going to be doing with this uh, time. So I actually start my sabbatical hours away. <laughs> All right, one more sermon next, and, and I'm flying away. So, um, so what? I, so sabbatical is meant to be uh, 50% personal rejuvenation and 50% professional and personal growth. Uh, so. I am going to be spending time, my my wife is a teacher and my kids are out of school for the summer, so my sabbatical is lined up starting Monday morning, Um, and so I I intentionally lined it up with their summer vacation. So we're going to be spending some time as a family, we're going to be traveling up to Mammoth, further up we're going to be spending time with family in Bend, Oregon, coming back around, going to San Francisco, spending time with more family, plenty of family time. Personal rejuvenation. 
professionally, professional growth, I'm going to be attending several conferences during my time away. Um, if you've ever been in my office, on the left-hand side of my desk is a stack of books. Um, it, 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 this was the place where I always placed the books like, I need to read this for work. And I'll take like one book off and I'll read it, but then I'll add two more, and then, like, then I start prioritizing them. The one on the top is the one I should read, and the one at the bottoms can wait. And all the, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, but there are actually some books in this stack that have literally been on my desk for like three years. So, um, so part of my sabbatical is I'm literally going to take the time and read these books. So that's part of it. Another part of my sabbatical that I'm looking forward to um, um, is I'm going to be attending other churches uh, for worship. As a pastor of this church, guess where I worship all the time? Right here. <laughs> so it's going to give me an opportunity to get exposure to other, what other churches are doing, some of their best practices, um, have that experience of w walking onto a church campus as a first-time guest, seeing how that is experienced and so on. And if I catch on to good ideas or see things that I think, oh, that would work at Stonebridge, I'm going to be calling them, you know, the following week and, and calling and talking to pastors and saying, hey, you did this, why do you do that, you know, and so on. So my hope is to come back from sabbatical a better pastor than I was when I left. Um, now, um, I wanted to um, uh, dispel any misconstrued ideas. Um, some people might think that this is all a cover-up that Pastor Jonathan is taking a sabbatical uh, with, and he's going to go and interview with other churches and soon and quickly leave the church. Not the case at all. Um, in fact, it's just the opposite. When sabbaticals are awarded to a pastor, the, the understanding is that the pastor is committed to serving to at least another two years in the church. So you're not going to get rid of me that easily. Um, what else did I want to talk about? Oh, and, and there, <laughs> there is a strategy to all of this as well. Um, as a church that is in transition and seeking a new lead pastor, um, one of the things that a pastor, a, a new best pastor will be looking for is what our church offers that person. So imagine that in several months, uh, we have, as a church, narrowed it down to, to one person who's going to be the best pastor and the best match for Stonebridge. And when they come to this church and an interview with us and interview perhaps with other churches, what if other churches as part of their package was offering sabbatical and Stonebridge wasn't? It's possible that that pastor might choose the other church over us because of that. And so this is a, what I, <laughs> it's a joke, but I am basically your sabbatical lab rat. We're going to see if it works and if it's a blessing, which I believe it will be. Um, it will be a good thing for all of us. So, so there is a strategy to it as well. So, so again, thank you. Thank you for the sabbatical, um, and I'm looking very much forward to it. Um, so, Jesus encouraged rest. Is there someone here today that needs to hear Jesus' invitation? Come to me to a quiet place and get some rest. Number two, our second observation from today's text. Jesus paid attention to those around him. Jesus paid attention to those around him. Jesus saw that large crowd. How many times have you, um, it happens to me, I'm sure it's happened to you, you maybe you've got a lot going on in your own head, and it's, it's a busy day at work, whatever it is, 
um, and you're thinking about schedules and what needs to be done, and maybe there's a certain problem that you're trying to fix, and all of these things are going on, and perhaps you leave work, um, and you get in your car, and you start driving, and the next thing you know, you're in your driveway, and you have no idea what happened in between. Uh, or maybe at the supermarket, right? You pull into a parking space, and you're going grocery shopping, and the next thing you know, you're like in aisle three with a, a hand of cheer, you know, box of Cheerios in your hands, and you're like, you have no idea how you got from the car to, to the aisle. Like, what happened? When we're so caught up in our own heads with what we are thinking about that we actually um, go on autopilot, we, we, we lose what's actually going on around us. This is kind of like the Genovese effect. How many of you have, I, I doubt any of you have heard of the Genovese effect. Oh, one person's not, he said the Genovese effect. This is, this is really interesting. Now, the origins of the Genovese effect, this term, is, are, is actually terrible. Now, however, there's an interesting twist along the way as I tell this story, and ultimately there's some good news at the end of it. In the, uh, in early, in the early hours of March 13, 1964, a 28-year-old woman by the name of Kitty Genovese was attacked and stabbed to death outside of her apartment uh, in Queens, New York. And two weeks after this murder, the New York Times published an article claiming that there were 38 witnesses who either saw or heard the attack, but none of them called the police or came to her aid. This has become known as the Genovese effect. Because, this tragic, because of this tragic event, um, there's this social phenomenon of people who are, don't respond to emergency situations. It's, the Gen it's known as the Genovese effect. It's also known as the bystander effect. Psychologists call it, I think this is an interesting term, pluralistic ignorance. I'll explain that in a second. Pluralistic ignorance. Um, but in today's world, uh, I've given a new term to it, and I call it the social media effect, right? Something tragic is going on, and the first response is for people to pull out their phones and push record. Social media effect. Now, pluralistic and ignorance. The, uh, there's, uh, the, this is the idea that we, as human beings, are social animals, and we take on our behavior influenced by the behavior of others. And so if something is happening and people are standing around and watching, we are likely, just on some level, we, we take in all those social cues and we'll stand around and watch. Um, the, the article that I refer to in, in version talks about that, you know, we've probably all experienced it. You drive by a car accident or, or some cars have pulled over to the side of the road and you keep driving not because you don't care, but you just assume that somebody else has called 911 or you assume that somebody else has taken care of it. That assumption is part of pluralistic ignorance. So, the Genovese effect. Let me continue the story. Now, the interesting twist is that uh, 40 years after um, this event in 1964, there were researchers who went back to look into all the details and facts of the case and what they found is that the original New York Times article for the sake of sales had greatly exaggerated what had actually happened. Truth, <laughs> yes. Um, 
The truth is there were more like five people who, who had heard or had seen the attack, and all of them responded, although some of them not as quickly as perhaps they should have. And part of what they discovered was that there were actually, uh, these five people called the local police stations, and because the communications were confused, the police weren't really sure what was going on, and so they took the calls, but they didn't make it a, a high priority to respond quickly. So, that's the interesting twist. Forty years later, they discover all of this. Now, here's the good news. Because of this terrible incident, um, it initiated a change for the New York Police Department. Four years after the incident, so this is for all of you trivia people, because uh, some point you're going to be playing trivia and this question's going to come up. Uh, four years after the event, so in 1968, the New York City uh, Police Department and emergency uh, first responders started the 911 emergency call system. Um, and, um, and then, obviously, that went nationwide. So it was 1968 that the 911 uh, system started, and it was all because of this Genovese event. So, what I'm talking about is just the, this idea of, of being aware of our environment and being aware of the people that we interact with and we see, that we get out of our own heads and have a better sense of those around us. It's, it's incredible that this crowd had spent time with Jesus and there was something about them. There was such a desperation in them that they get in a boat to be alone and to rest and this crowd is following them along the edges of the lake. And when Jesus lands, he saw them. He wasn't stuck in his own head. He wasn't worried about the disciples. Man, we didn't get the rest we needed. He saw them. Which leads to my next point, number three, because when he saw him, he then displayed compassion. Jesus displayed compassion. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus began teaching them many things, our scripture says, and then this scripture is the one that leads into the feeding of the 5,000, so he teaches them and he feeds them. Uh, this is, uh, event is similarly recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 36, and there it reads, when he, that would be Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The definition of compassion is feeling a deep sympathy for another who is stricken by misfortune and accompanied by a desire to alleviate that suffering. So Jesus had a feeling of sympathy for the crowd and had a deep desire to alleviate the suffering that he saw. He acted on his awareness of their circumstances. Because of today's scripture and its corollary in Matthew, the circumstances of the crowd, like sheep without a shepherd, were that they were spiritually lost. The crowd was spiritually disenfranchised inasmuch as they were spiritually locked out by the Jewish legalism of their day. The legalism of the religion, instead of ushering people into the presence of God, the legalism of of the religion was actually separating people and distancing them from entering into a relationship with God. 
Now, Matthew writes that they are, were harassed and helpless. Powerless to be able to make a change in their own economic well-being, perhaps their poverty made them especially vulnerable to abuse. It's true then, and it's true today. Acting on his awareness, acting on his ever-increasing sympathy for their circumstances, Jesus taught them, right? It's so interesting. It seems almost, well, here they were and he taught them because they were separated from God by the religious leaders and the religious systems. And so like sheep without a shepherd, he taught them the truths of God. And then he miraculously met their physical need by feeding them. One of the the three key values of Stonebridge is serving. And this core value isn't something that we just like conjured up just to keep people busy. We serve because Christ first served us. We serve because like in today's scripture, Jesus many times over set the example not only of being aware of the suffering that is around us, but to desire to do something to alleviate it. And so I ask you, Stonebridge, do we send people to Uganda? Do we send people to Haiti? Do we send people to Honduras? Do we send people to Mexico just to keep them busy? Or do we go to make a positive change in the world and to alleviate in the best way that we can some suffering in the world? I ask you, does, Stonebridge, does the Stonebridge local missions team provide opportunities for growth groups and individuals to serve in North Hollywood, to serve Ashley Manor, to serve at the Samaritan Center, to serve at Sarah's house, to serve at James Storehouse in, in order to just keep you busy? Or is it in order to alleviate, even in the smallest ways, with the time that we have, with the resources that we have, even in the smallest ways, attempt to alleviate some of the adversity that is experienced right here in our community? Faithful obedience begins with the healing of our own sometimes self-absorbed blindness to the adversity that is around us. Faithful obedience requires risking letting down our guard and allowing God's Holy Spirit to soften our hardened hearts so that our hearts would be transformed to see the things that God has a heart for and that God's Holy Spirit would be able to work in us and through us to make a difference right here where we live, being the healing hands in the world on his behalf and to his glory. So let me conclude with these four things. In a culture that prides itself in productivity and in busyness, I encourage you to practice the spiritual discipline, the spiritual principle of rest. And by doing so, discover the blessing. I also encourage you to memorize Mark chapter 6, verse 34. It's a... I feel kind of odd saying that, but there's, I have a, a reason. I mean, not, I, I encourage people to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I encourage people to memorize scripture, but there's an intent to me uh, calling it out to this morning. And that is, I think this verse actually encapsulates our whole understanding of the gospel. 
that the, that the world is broken and that God, <clears throat> because of his love for the world, because of his love for us, sent his son into the world who, seeing the adversity, seeing the pain, wants to make a difference in our lives. So Mark chapter 6, verse 34 when Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he acted. He began teaching them. And ultimately, he fed them. That's the encapsulation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So, starting with those who are closest to you, maybe in your own family, maybe in your work environment, and then even out in concentric circles to even strangers in the streets, I encourage you to raise your awareness of those around you and then prayerfully convert that awareness into meaningful ways to alleviate the suffering that you might see.